Over the next 10 years, Comcast is committing $1 billion through Project Up to reach tens of millions of people with the opportunities and resources they need to build a world of unlimited possibilities. Learn more at comcast.com slash project up. I'm feeling fairly, well, a little nostalgic. I'm returning, well, we're returning to my hometown of Perth in Western Australia to review today's case, which is the murder of one brothel madam Shirley Finn, which happened in uh, either late on the 22nd or early on the 23rd of June in 1975. Yeah, it's uh, it's another one of the uh, colourful local pieces of folk history and, um, you know, it has been revisited every, every couple of decades when there's been a new inquest or when one of the... Uh, investigators, the police or, or politicians involved passes away and uh, perhaps some of the, yeah, the the people related to them uh, come forward uh, either, you know, alleging uh, deathbed confessions or, uh, you know, now that, you know, perhaps a, a bit of a, a, a threat or, or a promise that was made to, to keep silent about certain things has, has passed with, with the passing of the person, you know, new information comes to light and, you know, there's there's a new inquest that has gone on every, you know, a couple of times. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely on the forefront of a lot of people's uh, consciousness and, you know, it reaches zeitgeist every now and again. So, uh, yeah, we thought we would revisit the murder of Shirley Finn. The more I was getting in the investigation and the different leads in that story, it just get more and more twisted. And I started hearing some names that you mentioned to me before, especially people of the Western Australia police and people of the organized crime, which was quite uh, quite impressive in in an ironic way of being impressive, the mm. level of police corruption in this case yep. and many others. There's one thing that um, I think a lot of Australian uh, underworld uh, figures have in common all through Australia, whether it's you know Sydney, Melbourne, and Perth, Brisbane, is that historically, you know, back in what they you know referred to as the bad old days, there was a lot of intermingling of the underworld with its larger-than-life colourful figures and the police force and also the uh, legal fraternity and also obviously business but definitely politicians. There are numerous uh, accounts, as we will hear particularly in this case, of fairly high-ranking politicians, usually state, 
uh, representatives uh, who have fairly close social ties and some fairly close personal ties with uh, a lot of you know these uh, these figures. That being said, uh, there was a, a some fairly compelling evidence, and there's definitely a lot of testimony saying how how close Shirley was to a lot of Perth's and West Australia's elite. There we go. Mm. So well. may I introduct? Introduce. That would be introduce introduce, introduce. <laughs> yeah. Cover the cover the bases of of this particular event. So our protagonist in this story was uh, Shirley June Finn, who was born mm. on the 2nd of November of 1941 in Fremantle, on West, Western Australia. So Shirley was the eldest child of a bomber pilot, and during her early childhood, she had to be raised by her mother. After the war, the family lived in the suburb of Mount Pleasant, and she lived a fairly good life. Before we continue, I would like to say one of the main sources that we used for this episode, and it's the book Dirty Girl by the author Juliet Wills, an Australian journalist that not only did a biography of Shirley Finn, but the book is also an investigation on the crime, and later on we will see how important Juliet Wills was for this cause. So Juliet did a research or the whole, uh, about the whole life of uh, Ju- um, of Shirley Finn, and she really points out a pivotal moment in her childhood that is when she was thirteen, fourteen years old, and she was well. Shirley Finn was starting puberty. Juliet Wills would say that she started having issues with her family because apparently there were older boys that, that were trying to date. <laughs> a very young Shirley Finn. Particularly, um, Wills says that uh, Shirley Finn's mother said that one day Shirley told her that she had lost, quote-unquote, her virginity to a 20-something-year-old boy, Tim, that took her to a bar, and that she told her mother that that experience had been awful and that she felt like she didn't win anything with that, um, with that encounter. The family were worried about her going out with these boys, not only because they were older, but also because of what the morality and the ideology was at the time about girls. You know, like Mm. a girl should remain virgin until... She gets married and has a family and all that sort of stuff. It should also be said that uh, that her family, the Shurings, were quite devout Catholics as well. And I'm pretty sure they didn't have any sort of sex ed at that time, so the issue of Shirley having sexual relationships, which they were really abused because of the difference of ages between she and these other boys. Uh, But a pregnancy, a teenage pregnancy, was a reason for a family to be very... How do you say shunned? Shunned, ostracized by the ostracized by society, by, by society, and particularly the, uh, the the devout Catholic society. So it seems that after this first encounter that Shirley had, uh, their parents were able to give her a curfew and actually get her 
to follow their advice. It doesn't seem like they were a hor- like they were a bad family. They were mm-hmm. just really concerned about her well-being, mm-hmm. but she was very extroverted, and well, she wanted to go out. That's some mm-hmm. teenagers really enjoy. So it was just a month after she had seen this boy Tim that she went out with another guy, a twenty-year-old guy called Pete. And that night, Shirley Finn didn't got back to mm-hmm. her parents' house, which resulted in her parents calling the police to look out uh, for her. And indeed, she was found in the, well, this guy Pete's house. And and this is something that I feel uh, I feel it's so sad, and it, it must have been traumatizing for Shirley. She was taken to the magistrate, to a judge at that time, Mm. and she was ordered to spend eight months in... It's like a a, a Catholic workhouse, basically, like a... uh, uh, Kind of like a a boarding school, um, or, you know, a welfare home, basically. Yeah, a Catholic Catholic church welfare home. And I feel it's... So unfair and, and infuriating because this boy, this guy, Pete, who was obviously doing something illegal, seducing or even having sex with this 14-year-old, mm. he never got any punishment for that. Um, Juliet Wills uh, puts a lot of stress in this event because mm. it turned out to be a pivotal point in her life in Shirley Finn's mm. house. So she was sent to the Good Shepherd, this Catholic uh, welfare home, Mm -hmm. which was notoriously cruel. In that place, the girls, the interns, would be... They were doing basically forced labor. Mm. They had... um, From from accounts, it's mainly laundry service. A laundry service. And the welfare home was actually making profit. They weren't doing that for free. So they were... Having these teenage girls spending long shifts doing cleaning for hospital and hotels, and they wouldn't get anything. And Juliet Will says that the meaning behind this, this punishment, because mm-hmm. it was really a punishment for a teenage girl's sexual behavior, was to cleanse their souls. And that's why Juliet Will says that she named her book uh, Dirty Girl. Not because she thinks that Shirley was a dirty girl, but because that was the idea and the impression that got uh, in, ingrained, ingrained in... in her mind. And there is actually a um, psychologist report done before and after Shirley Finn spent the time at the Good Shepherd. Mm. And it really shows that before going there, she was an extroverted and very energetic and vivacious younger. And after that, mm. she had a feeling of loneliness and shame and also even depression. So it was a particularly traumatic event. Mm. And in an ABC News documentary that mm. we watched together, there is this uh, childhood friend of Shirley named Helen whom says that uh, Shirley actually claimed that she was molested by the police Mm. before she was taken. I Mm. mean, that she was molested the night that the police were sent to look for her. Mm. 
the Nietzsche escape, let's say. And also, I have to note mm. that, you know, Shirley's family didn't want her to go to the welfare home. Mm. They, they they disagree with the with the, with, with this the judge's matter, decision yeah with the judges because they were really doing that out of interest for her safety mm. not as a punishment for being a dirty girl mm, mm. so that's a, that's really sad really yeah. I mean in as we said before in in their their own kind of way they they did want what was best for Shirley but the, I think their uh, idea of that was very rooted in the time and mm-hmm. you know in a in a very polite not overly respect you know uh keeping up appearances type aspect of respectability but they just wanted to try and produce a what they thought was a a, a good human a, you know unfortunately at this point it was you know a a a good a a good fem you know a a good female who would become a a young woman who would probably get married have a family and be a housewife be a housewife probably um which you know at the time was 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 the social norm um, exactly so after uh, Shirley left the home the the welfare the catholic welfare home mm-hmm. at 15 years old she left and okay so after leaving the welfare home, which she attempted to escape a couple of times as well, uh, Shirley didn't went back to school, mm. probably because she must have been very ashamed of all that process. Mm-hmm. And like we were saying before, of the ostracism mm. of a person by society. So she started working retail and that's when she met her husband to be Desmond Find, mm. who was a 22-year-old Air Force mechanic. So she married a pilot like her father. Mm. I find that very curious. They married in Perth and then they went to live to Melbourne, where Desmond continued to work in the Air Force and Shirley worked as a sales assistant at Buckley and Nunn. Mm-hmm. In the next three years... Shirley Finn would have would give birth to her three children, her son Stephen and Shane, and her youngest daughter Bridget, whom I think until the nowadays is the only one of her children that is alive. And Bridget has been fairly like, active in trying to come you know, get to the bottom of of her mother's murder and. Has has been um, quite active in investigating and talking to uh, various journal- investigative journalists that she mm-hmm. yeah that she trusted, um, and I believe she's still in contact with quite a lot of her her mum's old uh, acquaintances and friends. So she's mm-hmm. still she's still you know flying the flag, so to speak. Yeah. So according to Julia Wills, even though the well, Shirley was very, they were very much in love with this one and they had like a honeymoon phase at the beginning of their marriage. Um, this one sh- soon started to show uh, signs of being an aggressive mm-hmm. man. I mean, I think basically all of 
the romantic relationships that Shirley Finn had mm. were actually quite abusive. Yeah. So apart of being naturally a dominant person, Desmond uh, suffered from a head injury mm-hmm. when when Shirley Finn was approximately 21 years old. And not only he became depressed, but also he was incapacitated to work. Mm. And at that point, remember that they already had three children. So Shirley started to look for another option, mm. another, um, how can I say, marketplace? Me- yeah, well, another means of generating income. Shirley basically had to become the breadwinner mm-hmm. um, and, you know, support her, uh, support her, Husband who you know was, suffer, you know, suffering mentally. But I think she was also looking forward to splitting that relationship yeah, yeah. at some point. I think because it had had such a big downturn, particularly after the accident, mm-hmm. and there was uh, you know with for someone who had dropped out of education at a fairly yes. young age, the, essentially the age of fourteen, uh, fifteen. What fifteen? <laughs> That's true, but before that she was yeah, the, she the was, Catholic uh, exactly. and she was, workhouse. She wasn't so. studying there. Yeah. So she turned into sex work. Mm-hmm. And it looks like there was quite a boom of, at those times also because of what business? Mainly because of the... My name. Oh, of course. <laughs> Mm. Of course. Of course. Yeah. Um, yeah there were, Australia was seeing another mining boom as um, Japan and, uh, well, pre- predominantly Japan, but uh, was requiring a lot of raw resources to yeah, use in its ramped up production. Of course, with the extra, you know, the uh, growth in the mining industry, you get a lot of miners. Going away on their uh, on their couple of weeks swing, and then coming back with a pocket full of cash and a burning a burning the wallet burning a hole in their pocket, and uh, I'm looking for take the edge off, yeah, so um, to speak. Mm, and it's uh, sex work and mining in Australia has always gone hand in hand from the you know the very early days of the first gold rushes. And, you know, it's uh, you know, just history repeating itself even up until this day in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, but definitely at the time, the, uh, the sex industry certainly was having its, 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 uh, itself a boom. And also, you know, due to the, uh, yeah, the era, which, you know, I think was uh, definitely sort of in the swinging, swinging 60s, yeah. there was a lot more... Uh, sort of expression, sexual expression happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and one form of this was body painting, which... And striptease. And striptease. Which were the first jobs that uh, Shirley started mm-hmm. to take. She also worked She also worked uh, traveling with a... Uh, traveling a boxing tent. Ah. <laughs> That's the one. Say that. Oh. Yeah. No, the, she... Uh, but also a boxing tent was kind of like a traveling sideshow. It wasn't just the boxing ring where you'd have the, uh, you know, the, the, the tent champion who uh, people could come and challenge for a certain amount, you know, for a few dollars. And then if they won, then they would, you know, aside from, uh, you know, getting the bragging rights, they would win a small jackpot as well. 
Um, needless to say, the you know the the tent champions were some very 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 hard men, and you know not it wasn't very often that they were beaten by members of the public. But <laughs> that being said, some of the side attractions were uh, tents where uh, you know people could see a striptease, or uh, in Shelley's case, uh, body painting, uh, which uh, yeah she was. Uh, I think it's very curious hmm. how it looked like it was a normal thing to have that sort that type mm. of side jobs, especially when we have to remember that at that time prostitution was pretty much illegal mm. in whole Australia. Mm. Actually, even though she was doing good with her business in 1969, mm. Shirley Finn was conducting a body painting and escort business that was actually raided by the police mm. and she was charged and convicted mm-hmm. with well of course keep keeping premises for the purpose of prostitution mm-hmm. and this resulted in a second period of ostracism but she, well by, by society Shirley. at large essentially the i mean for Shirley, but now it also added uh, her three children that mm. at that time were going to a catholic school and they had to leave mm-hmm. the premises that's it I mean, I'm sure people would have whispered quietly if they knew, because Perth still, but uh, even especially back then, was you know a very big country town, as they say, or, or not so much. That's perhaps a bit unfair, but was you know definitely every you know everyone knows everyone, and it, something like that being a secret would be nigh on impossible. Mm-hmm. But I think with such a with a conviction. A conviction. Um, it was well and truly out in the open and completely undeniable now. So, unfortunately, that's when society clapped back and that's when she had the, uh, the unfortunate ostracism from her society. Her, ki- her kids were uh, kicked out of their school, which was a Catholic school, and they effectively got pushed deeper into the the margins, so mm. to speak. Yeah. Mm. But Shirley didn't give up about working in the sex business for this occasion. Mm. And this is when it it starts getting complicated because uh, shortly after she had been arrested and convicted, mm. she became uh, associated with a woman called Dorothea Flatman, mm. who was a brothel operator. Who, who used to work in Sydney, yeah, especially in the King Street, which yep. is basically or King's Cross, King's yep. Cross, which is the street with all the brothels, mm-hmm. and it was this woman Dorothea who introduced uh, Shirley Finn to the system of the mm-hmm. how to be a brothel madam, basically of the how policy to... of mm. the policy of containment. Yes. So, what was the policy of containment? Well, effectively, it was. Working hand in hand with the vice squad of your particular area, and as I mentioned before, a lot of the police and politics or politicians and the judiciary, as well as organized crime, all had understandings which were usually uh, in the form of kickbacks or lubricated 
uh, in the form of kickbacks, whether they were uh, time with some of the sex workers on the side and being invited to fairly exclusive gentlemen's parties, or whether they were financial kickbacks. Um, Cash. Yep, cold, hard cash. Cash. Lots and lots of cash. Bribes. Bribes. So the area of containment was essentially an agreement brokered by, in in this particular case, very notorious uh, uh, sex work kingpin uh, criminal by the name of Abe Saffron. This is not the last time that we're talking. No. That we're going to talk about So yes, that's right. This isn't the last time we hear about Abe Saffron. Um, so he was able to broker a uh, a bit of a um, we can... an agreement with the West Australian uh, head of vice department of the vice squad, Bernie uh, Johnson. Bernie Johnson. So in this case, it was up to the vice squad to regulate and hence contain mm-hmm. the uh, the brothels that operated. In Perth at the time. That is, Shirley Finn would meet up weekly with Bernie Johnson and she would give personally the money that she was owning the police as protection, mm-hmm. quote-unquote. And there are several witnesses of uh, this mm. relationship, to be precise, such as, well... In the ABC News documentary mm. that we also mentioned before, Helen, mm. this uh, childhood or, well, the lifehood yeah. friend of Shirley Finn actually mm. uh, recalls the day when Shirley told her that she was working as a brothel madam and mm. Helen tells her, you cannot do that, you know that's illegal. And Shirley Finn answered, I know, but I work with the police and I pay... Al- and I pay a lot of money to be in this business. Mm-hmm. She also sort of recounts the method of payment, which you know really is something out of a movie. A movie <laughs> yeah. um, where she would have to meet uh, Bernie Johnson in a car park, mm-hmm. uh, almost a vacant lot, and Bernie would drive his car right up next to uh, Shirley's, and. She would hand off the bag of money and then he would drive away and yeah. basically passing it through the windows. Yeah. And that was that was the the method of uh of transfer. So yeah, very very cloak and dagger. Yeah. Well <laughs> Exactly. Mm. So under the containment system, mm. quote unquote, uh, Shulfin made a lot of money for a few years. Mm-hmm. She Happened to buy a very luxurious house at the south of Perth. And I actually found a news article that indicated that even Elton John went to a party Mm. once there. Yep. Well, she was well known as a throwing some of the best parties that, Mm -hmm. you know, Perth was. uh, Yeah, she was well known for throwing some of the, the best, most extravagant, fun parties that were going on in Perth at the time. Uh, it was veritable who's who list or personalities as and when you see the called. pictures of Shirley Johnson you can really tell that she Shirley is Finn. like Shirley oh, Shirley Johnson Shirley Finn <laughs> mm. of Shirley Finn you can really tell that she's showing off the the wealth that yep. she was enjoying for a while mm. 
so she was living in this very nice house with a very nice pool, by the way, mm-hmm. with uh, her younger uh, daughter mm-hmm. and with her partner, whom was a woman mm-hmm. called uh, Rosalind Blanc, Black or Rose Black. And uh, she was doing all right mm-hmm. for a couple of years. But even though she was making a lot of money uh-huh. under the containment system, at the same time, by uh, 1975, Shirley had uh, accrued a fairly large tax bill, which unfortunately she hadn't been uh, keeping up with her taxes. and Over $150,000. Yep. So, yeah. Mm. So... Fairly large, still fairly large now, but back then that was an absolute fortune, and she was completely unable to pay it. And you know, you might be able to bribe the West Australian police force. But I mean, she would would have been able if she had sold her oh, mansion. That's right, she could have. But the last thing she wanted to do was was that that was you know that was her castle. That was her sort of sticking her middle finger up to the rest of society saying guess what you uh you know you you ostracize me you 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 threw me on the heap and look where i am now i'm looking down at you and she had a family and she had a family and looks like she had a very loving relationship with this woman with rose black Mm -hmm. to her murder surely had a arranged a tax hearing for, well, that uh, $150,000 that she was owing to the tax department. Shirley was supposed to attend a tax hearing on the week after her murder, actually. And there are several witnesses that can tell that she had been threatened to certain uh, personalities of the Western police to blow the whistle if they didn't help her. So one of those witnesses is a woman called Lee Wiswick, whom speaks in the ABC News documentary. And she indicates that she used to be the driver of Shirley and also a sex worker in one of her brothels. According to Lee, uh, not only Shirley had a relationship with Rosaline, but she also had an affair with Ray O'Connor, whom was... At the time, he was the police minister of Western Australia, mm-hmm. and later he would go on to become the premier of West Australia. Exactly. So, League indicates that she would drive off uh, Shirley to have meetings, or more like dates, with Ray O'Connor, and that uh, around the time of her of her crime, she uh, eavesdropped a conversation in which Shirley told to Ray O'Connor, if I go down, you go down too. And there is also an acquaintance of Shirley called Jacqueline that she she received. She had a visit of Shirley one day in her house. Shirley Finn told her about another meeting with a different uh, agent of the police force called Owen Leach. Uh, Shirley had said, allegedly, Mm -hmm. according to Jacqueline, that Owen told her to shut her mouth and also told her that on the night of the 22nd of June she would have a meeting with someone important who would help her. Uh, Shirley said that Owen 
indicated her or told her to get dressed to impress. The nickname of this man that she was going to meet this night was allegedly the bear. And we actually know someone who was nicknamed the bear, mm. but we're going to tell that afterwards. Uh-huh. So Bridget, uh, Shirley's youngest daughter, tells that uh, the night of the 22nd of July, uh, of June, mm-hmm. they made a barbecue at her house with Rose at 6 p.m. And that then at approximately 8 p.m., Shirley told Richard that she should have an early night, so she basically sent her off to bed. And at 9.40, one of the neighbors of Shirley testified that she saw her leaving her house in her white Dodge Phoenix. Shirley Finn's body was found by a... A motorcycle patrolman. By a motorcycle patrolman at 8.30 on the morning at 8.30 a.m. of the 23rd of July Mm -hmm. of 1975. Her body was found inside her Dutch Phoenix, which was parked in the Golf Club of Perth. In yep. South Perth. Yep, the Royal Perth Golf Club in South Perth. Exactly. Yep. Her body was... Uh... Over the next 10 years, Comcast is committing $1 billion through Project Up to reach tens of millions of people with the opportunities and resources they need to build a world of unlimited possibilities. Learn more at comcast.com slash project up. En USPS entregamos más paquetes para que tú también puedas hacerlo. ¡Llegaron mis zapatos de fútbol! Más rápido de lo que esperaba. ¿Entrega para la futura deportista? ¡Huepa! Llegó la sortija y le va a encantar. Está en ella. ¿Entrega para una futura esposa? ¡Oye! ¡Llegó mi nueva computadora! ¿Entrega para una futura startup? En USPS, sin importar el negocio que tengas, siempre estaremos entregando por ti. Entregamos para todos. Conoce más en USPS.com diagonal para todos. Over the driving wheel. She was wearing a ball gown and all her money and jewelry were with her, which included some pretty expensive I was going to say, there were some diamonds. fairly uh, extravagant and, yeah, uh, fairly impressive jewelry she was wearing. Yeah. It's worth looking up. Uh, which at least indicates that she was a murderer for her jewelry and her money. At least. Mm. And she had been shot four times in her head. The police would later say that this was an execution-style murder. Mm-hmm. The journalist Terry Willisey was one of the first ones to arrive to the crime scene. Very less... Um, be- Basically, an hour after the body was found, Mm -hmm. he got to the place. And an interview given in 2019, Terry says that uh, he didn't notice at that time. But the crime scene was covered with cops and journalists walking around all around the place, touching stuff without Mm -hmm. using gloves. And he he had actually picked inside the car where the body of Shirley was still there. Mm. He also says, and there is a video footage of Mm. this, 
that when the police took the body of Shirley out and they took the car away from the golf club, they didn't took it with a... A, a tow truck or they didn't load it onto the back of a uh, a flatbed truck to you know sort of preserve the car in its in its original state there is literally a police detective jumping in the front seat where Shirley had been murdered and then just casually reversing it and then you know peeling off down the road driving it back to the uh, the police station he put a white sheet on the seat but yet, that's not the procedure of how to take a, a car. No. And Terry, this journalist, also says that he noticed that in any moment the police opened the truck mm. of the car to check if there was anything back there. Mm. So from pretty much the get-go, it's acknowledged that the crime scene was completely contaminated. The, the, whole, or the whole investigation was pretty much botched right from the get-go and that there was little to no forensic integrity maintained whatsoever. The fact that police and journalists and you know bystanders were just tromping around, mm-hmm. going for sneak peeks in the car and you know, everywhere around. In less than a year, the police uh, surrender and... The verdict. The, the, yeah. the verdict or the investigation files mm-hmm. to the coroner, which deemed the crime as an unsolved case, even though there were a couple of leads that they weren't followed. Mm-hmm. The case of Shirley Finn went kind of forgotten for a couple of years because it was very, very much covered by the media by many years, but. It just hit brick walls. There was just there was just nothing. Um, even a lot of uh, a, a, a lot of the people involved with Shirley's life were effectively silenced, or mm-hmm. you know had the threat of violence hanging over them. So a lot of them were well and truly keeping their mouths shut, and obviously a lot of the other uh... and so many leads were ignored mm. until. The 2000s, that is around the time when Juliette Wills uh, started doing her own digging up mm-hmm. in the story of the crime and the life of Shirley. Mm-hmm. And also by that stage, the police force in Australia in general, but definitely in Perth, had gone through somewhat of a, of a, of a cleansing. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the old guard, some of them were still working there but you by by that stage there'd been a few other uh, controversies that had angered the public and of course by this stage people you know were a little bit less naive when it came to uh corruption and and you know the 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 inapproachableness of the honor and integrity of of the police force and politicians and and judiciary so uh you know they were uh, they they'd been through and cleaned up a lot of the police force and you know a lot of the old a lot of the old guard had retired by this stage or you know sort of had retirement thrust upon them mm. so uh you know the police force was still known to close ranks as we'll see um however uh it was by no means um you know the threat of violence wasn't as implicit 
as it as it would have been in the in the seventies when the, when this murder occurred. Yeah. Mm. So uh, one witness that uh, Juliet contacted after, like in the modern times, <laughs> in the modern times, mm. like nowadays, was a man called John Mirens, whom told her. And he later on testified that he had actually been past the Royal Golf Course mm -hmm. on 6 a.m. of that morning, the morning of, mm -hmm. well, of the 23rd of, of June. And he, and he told, and he testifies that he saw Shirley's white dodge. It was a very flashy and very um, attractive car also. So it, it was easy to spot. Mm. And one green car that was parked next to Shirley's car, and two other cars that weren't the police. None of them are police cars, but anyhow, that they were parked outside. Mm. This man, John Mirens, actually contacted police at that time, at mm -hmm. the time of the murder of Shirley. But he was con I mean, he called the police to give his witness. And he got communicated to a sergeant, which, uh, like, said that he appreciated mm. the information, but they that they already had enough information about that case, mm -hmm. and they never took a formal witness. Mm. So they completely buried that one. Wills also had an interview with Ray O'Connor, Mm -hmm. And Bernie Johnson, which are both on the ABC News. Mm. Do you want to say something about that? Mm. I don't remember, to be honest. Okay. Yeah, I'll let you know it. Mm. So Ray O'Connor, mm. which let's remember was the minister... The minister, or the police minister. The police, and yeah. an alleged uh, lover mm -hmm. of uh, Shul Finn. Well, he was interviewed by Juliet, and he denied even knowing... Mm. Uh, Shirley in the first place. Yeah. But there's a witness of an ex-police cop called Colin Rowe, whom, in the day of the murder of Shirley, mm -hmm. went to the police force, uh, to her house, to look for evidence or leads. And he actually found, and he picked into a photo album mm -hmm. in the house of Shirley Finn. And she found, and he, Colin he. Rowe found several pictures of a pool party in which he could see and recognize very well the face of Ray O'Connor mm -hmm. with Shirley Finn and other uh, police agents. Mm -hmm. So this uh, photo album, mm -hmm. this photo album was taken by the police. But guess what happened with that, Chris? Oh, I couldn't imagine all this vital evidence. <laughs> it vanished. Oh. It vanished. It was never found. Oh, just think today it's probably sitting in a drawer somewhere in the, you yeah. know. Police Central in, in the CBD of Perth. She also interviewed the ex-chief of the Vice Squad, Bernie Johnson, mm -hmm. whom was the cop that uh, Shirley was paying personally, the mm -hmm. money for belonging mm -hmm. in the containment system. Mm -hmm. And Wills asked Bernie Johnson what did he, what went through his head when he got to the crime scene and saw the body of Shirley Finn. Mm. And Bernie Johnson answered, not the same that went through her head. Mm. So he cracked a joke <laughs> yep. about this woman that had been shot four times in the head. Mm. He denies 
of course, getting money from mm -hmm. Shirley, getting sexual services from her brothels, because mm -hmm. that was also part, part of, the, of uh... the deal, as you said mm -hmm. very well. One of the new witnesses mm -hmm. that um, were willing to talk nowadays with mm -hmm. Juliet Wills was also Rose Black, Shirley Finn's at that time partner. Mm -hmm. She would tell Wills yeah. that she witnessed a reunion between Shirley Finn and Bernie Johnson mm -hmm. in her own house and that she helped Shirley hit some money in a shoebox or a hatbox. And she also mentioned that uh, Shirley Finn would refer, would call uh, Bernie Johnson by a nickname, which mm -hmm. was the Bear. The Bear. And she knew that Shirley was going to have a meeting on the night of the 22nd of June. Mm -hmm. And Rosaline told Shirley that she would offer to hit in the truck of the car to mm -hmm. save her as a protection. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and Shirley told her not to do that because she was going to be hiding the money mm -hmm. that she was taking to the reunion in the, in the trunk. So in the trunk. That would give, all, give her away straight away the second the trunk was popped. Do you know how much money they were paying, she was paying per week to Bernie Johnson and the Western Police? No, how much was that? Was it, was it $100? In the ABC News documentary? Yeah. We hear an, an ex, a former brothel madam called yeah. Linda Watson, mm -hmm. whom knew Shirley, yeah. whom also was another witness in mm -hmm. the inquiry, yeah. the nowadays inquiry. And she would say that Bernie Johnson asked her to pay $100 a week mm -hmm. per girl. Per girl. Per Ooh, girl right. that had in her brothel. Mm -hmm. And then once... A time after the the crime mm -hmm. for Shirley happened, Bernie Johnson was actually threatened. This madam, Linda Watson, mm -hmm. uh, he needed her help because he was looking forward, uh, like met bearing or messing around with a an honest cup. cup. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He was uh, trying to set up a honey pot. <laughs> that's how you call it. That's yep. Yeah, that's how I believe it's called. Yeah. So he, yeah, he needed to uh, catch this, uh, get this, get, get some this, dirt. Get on some this dirt. Guy. Needed to generate some dirt on this honest cop. And that he threatened mm -hmm. this madam, uh, Linda Watson, and told her that if she didn't help him, she would lose her business mm -hmm. and she would end up like, like Shirley, Shirley Finn. I think it's outrageous how easily they were going around threatening people. Like, mm. yeah, you see these people, we totally kill her mm. and no one can touch us. It's yep. uh, mm -hmm. outrageous. So it's in 2017 that Juliet Wills mm -hmm. uh, publishes the book Dear Digger. And on that same year, Willis with uh, Bridget, mm -hmm. uh, Finn's uh, daughter. daughter, they finally manage forced the police to run a to run a coronial inquest mm -hmm. which is basically a new investigation to open the case mm -hmm. the files and this one rather than being handled by the police force is handled by the coroner's office mm -hmm. which is 
related to, but not completely at arm's length from the police force, but has enough independence that it can, uh, yeah, not not be directly interfered with in uh, procedurally by the police. Mm-hmm. So Benny Johnson was called as a witness mm-hmm. naturally uh, in two thousand seventeen. But he didn't went because, according to his doctor, he was diagnosed with Alzheimer and dementia, mm-hmm. and he wasn't fit as a witness. Yeah. As a witness, and on April of 2018, Bernie Johnson died mm-hmm. at age 18, 80 years old. There's mm-hmm. mm-hmm. a bit of more of speculation of who else could have done it, even though it pretty much seemed that was the same. Bernie the Bear Johnson. Mm-hmm. There was there were many other leads such as this known hitman criminal, no. a, apparently very famous in Australia, Neddy Smith. Mm. What can you tell me of Neddy? Well, it was known that he had uh, flown to uh, to Perth for allegedly an arranged meeting. Uh, with with Shirley and with an unnamed police officer, um, this much was known, um, and that was bit of information was given by a, a former WA detective, uh, James Boland or James Archibald Boland. Um, it was considered hearsay, or it was a rumor at the time, but it was believed firm enough that it was actually documented and, if, if needed to, could be investigated and verified uh, further. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, there's another, nowadays, another testimony of a former police cop, which mm-hmm. we couldn't find the, na- find the name of the mm. witness, probably yeah. because it's because of their own protection. Mm-hmm that had witnessed seeing Shirley Finn a couple of days before her murder, mm-hmm. and she was in the canteen of the police department, yeah. actually, having a meeting with other agents. Mm. There's never been a better time to find out why BetMGM is the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app and place a $10 Moneyline wager on any NBA playoff game. If either team hits a three-pointer in the game, you'll win $200 in free bets. Just use code CHAMPION200 when you make your first bet. Sign up now and discover BetMGM's daily promotions, boosted odds specials, and more. Download the app or go to BetMGM.com and use code CHAMPION200 to win $200 in free bets if either team hits a three in any NBA playoff game. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. 21 years of age or older to wager. Virginia only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-888-532-3500. BetMGM is pitching baseball fans a chance to swing for the fence 
expenses. Register using code CAPITAL200 and win $200 in free bets when you place a $10 Moneyline wager on any Major League Baseball game and either team hits a home run, regardless of your bet's outcome. Enjoy baseball like never before with BetMGM's daily promotions at your fingertips all season long. Sign up today and find out why nothing beats a win at the King of Sportsbooks. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. This cup, this unknown cup, uh, gave this testimony at the time, and a couple of days after that, he was uh, another motorbike. How do you call it? A, a patrol, a motorbike patrolman. A motorbike patrolman. He was actually hit in his motorcycle mm. by a car full of detectives. Mm-hmm. Or, well, he claimed that there seemed detectives for him, mm-hmm. and that he they literally told him to shut his mouth, otherwise he would end up dead. Mm-hmm. And it should also be said that it was um, also former police officer James Boland, who, as well as making people aware at the uh, at the 2017 hearing about uh, Nettie Smith, that was also one of the reasons why the information about Nettie Smith was being delivered to the officer James Boland, was that... The uh, Alan Lewis, who was the one providing information on a on a semi official level, wished for the police to have some fraud charges that his boyfriend was being uh, having brought up on him at the time. He wanted those charges to be downgraded. Now, with this information that uh, Boland took. Uh, and uh, was having added to the to the files, he was approached by the Criminal Investigation Bureau or the CIB boss, Don Hancock. Any other people who know anything about uh, West Australian policing and crime would know him as a very prominent figure and uh, again a very crooked, a very crooked character. <laughs> and he he told uh, Boland uh, to drop it and to not have any further involvement in the inquiry. So So mm. there you go. With this John Hancock that was actually murdered in a car bombing several years later. That's right. Suspected to have been placed by bikies over decades of uh you know rivalry and and uh, involvement with each other. Um I think had finally caught up with him. But he was also involved in the investigation for the robbery of 49 gold bars. Yes, the infamous Perth Mint Swindle, which is possibly something we might cover on a future date. But Don Hancock, oh, interesting, interesting character. This policeman couldn't lay straight, not even in bed. No, no, he couldn't. <laughs> That's how crooked they are. Yes. And we had another... Witness that recognized Bernie Johnson somehow. A man called Philip Hopper, 
that mm-hmm. at the time of the inquest was 68 years old. Mm-hmm. He had been close to the well, Royal Golf. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep, the, the, the Royal Perth Golf Club. Royal Perth Golf <laughs> Club. Exactly, he had been there with a girlfriend or some mm-hmm. girlfriends or some friends yep. or whatever, just spending a night and he heard a couple of gunshots. Mm-hmm. Afterwards, he was approached by two men mm-hmm. and One they imp- told the pair to keep quiet or that they would be shot. Mm-hmm. And he alleges that of those people intimidating him, one was Lawrence Tudori, who was a nightclub owner in Perth, and later was also intimidated by Bruce Wilson, who was a former leader of the Australian Workers' Union. So, as you can see, the ties into, uh, yeah, but there was spider a web. Hmm? Yeah. Uh, there was a second man, but a subsequently. Man. The, the, uh... And in an article in ABC News, mm. he... Well, pretty much says that he had spent the last 40-something years being afraid of telling his story and what he said. So, Mm. we have plenty of evidence. It's almost, reminds me kind of of the last case, but not quite. Because Mm -hmm. in our last case, we didn't have any names. Well, Mm. not that we know really. And here we have a few, but there is one that keeps coming back. And that is Bernie Johnson. Mm. But what was the result of the inquest? Actually, the inquest finished on August 2020. What did the coroner Barry King said? So, so the, once the inquest was closed, uh, that there had been utter incompetence in the investigation done by the police and that there were far too many suspects and that a lot of the vital evidence had completely disappeared, um, including the murder weapon, which they, I don't think they had any idea. They said that it was a rifle. A rifle, but there's a lot of rifles. There's a, know, lot, a lot of, of rifles. types of rifles. And there was another hint mm. by an unknown person that claimed to have been a lover mm-hmm. of Bernie Johnson, yes. a woman that... I couldn't find the name precisely. Well, I think, was that Witness L? Oh, yeah. Witness Mm. L. Yes. That claimed that in a bedtime confession, Bernie Johnson told her that he had murdered Shirley Finn, Mm -hmm. utilizing a shotgun, and that he had buried that shotgun Mm -hmm. in a country house that he had, and that he had also some gold Mm -hmm. hidden there. Uh-huh. Allegedly, this woman tried to search up for that for a while, but, well, that's... Didn't have any luck finding it. Yeah. No. Um, that one have been the Gijiganup house. Where, yeah. Yes, which just outside of Perth and a beautiful, beautiful area. Do you know if, the house? I don't yeah, know the yeah. house. I know Gijiganup. Gijiganup's beautiful. I used to <laughs> used to have to go through Gijiganup on the way back okay. to the family farm from Perth if we needed to go there for anything. You know the scene of... The crime scene. I do. Of. Well, I do know. Have, have you ever everyone's s- driven. Anyone yeah. who's on the uh, Mitchell Freeway, uh, Mitchell Freeway or the Quinana Freeway, heading south from the from the centre of the city past Como, which was where Shirley Finn's luxurious mansion still resides today, will pass the Royal uh, Royal Perth 
golf club in South Perth. It's right across from the zoo. And, yeah, I, you can drive past where the car was found and, mm-hmm. yeah, give your respects to, to Shirley. Uh, but we are rambling. So what mm. did the coroner Barry King say again? <laughs> mm. So, effectively, he was he said that the case was inconclusive because mm-hmm. of a lack of evidence which had been bungled beyond comprehension that there were just too many suspects that it was hard to narrow down to sort of uh, focus what little evidence there was and what what evidence there was and that there was quite a lot of testimony and um, while a lot of it was solid, a lot of it was contradictory or called other parts of other pieces of the uh, testimony mm-hmm. into slight... uh, Not to mention that one of the main suspects died very recently. Well, that is true. That is true. Um, So, regardless... I mean, the case, it's not close either. It's weird, maybe because I don't understand the judicial system, Mm. but the detectives of the Western uh, Police, according Mm. to Coroner Barry King, they must follow any new leads Mm -hmm. that they might get. Yeah. So, um, well, that's yeah. It was ruled inconclusive, yeah. so it just means there wasn't enough evidence to make a an official binding resolution and uh, and and finding. Um, I mean, in the last interview that I read from Bridget, mm. she doesn't seem optimistic. It's more like um, what she says is that she feels that her family has been denied. Mm justice that her that her mother Shirley was a good mother mm, mm. she cared for them she mattered to mm-hmm. her and she felt that like she had been abused and used mm-hmm. her whole life and her death is just the tip of the iceberg mm-hmm. she feels a bit of get a bit of satisfaction after all she's done mm-hmm. with the help of uh, Juliet Wills so at some point she feels a partial it's not a full closure because no. the justice <laughs> didn't do anything no but her only consolation is that they did the best they could with what they had and that it's back in the public consciousness again and that definitely isn't being swept under the rug perhaps as i said enough time has gone by that a lot of the actors involved some of the more uh, uh violent Actors have passed away and no one's around to cover their threats or to back up their threats anymore or no one cares about them enough or is afraid of them enough to protect them. So certain pieces of information that people were too scared to come out with were revealed at this particular uh, inquest. What is the um, status of sex work in Australia nowadays, Chris? Well, depending on which state you're in, it's largely legalised in different forms. Some places allow you to be registered. Like, in, I think I, I think it's Victoria. Mm-hmm. Uh, sex workers can be registered. And off the back of that, obviously, uh, becomes uh, protected mm-hmm. uh, so that if they are assaulted, that they can actually approach police now and get some form of 
of rec- you know recognition and and have their crime and uh, not investigated. being chased like criminals exactly and that you know they're not going to get stood over because they're paying the government tax not obviously paying protection money to the police now to exist as, I mean, there are some workers. states like New South Wales in which mm. brothels are also legal, mm-hmm. but a brothel must be registered, yes. whereas in Western Australia it's only autonomous sex work mm-hmm. that can be done, but a sex worker can publicize and can be mm. open about the status of their work. That's I mean, I sh- mm. I'm sure that there is a lot of stigma around that, mm. but it's not the same as being a sex worker having the stigma and having cha- and being chased by mm, the police mm. or having to pay bribes, like we see, because what the Western police was doing with Shirley and the other madams was just asking for bribes. Mm. Like, yeah, effectively. You could, you could have an... They were just running a racket, essentially. Yeah, like I... you could have your business if you had the means to pay for the police because there were other people that mm. couldn't pay or that they weren't picked by the Australian, by the Western Australian police, and mm. those people were getting raided and arrested mm-hmm. by the cops. Yes, well. they're essentially, yeah, being forced out of business. Just to say that sex work is work. Sex work is real work. I reckon that if she had had the possibility of being an autonomous uh, sex worker or have autonomous brothels and not pay for the police, perhaps this story would have been very much different. Mm, I think absolutely it would have been different. Hopefully she would have been able to approach a reputable accountant and get her taxes under control (laughs) rather than having to uh, funnel the money (laughs) through various companies and uh, aliases and and what what have you to uh, try and obscure the fact that she was running an quasi semi legal mostly illegal brothel mm-hmm. um and she would never would have been in the position to have to rely on these despicable despicable men so <laughs> these very crooked policemen these absolutely crooked as hell policemen no i mean to me it's important to point out this stuff because the in argentina the legal position mm. towards sex work is that it's I mean, it's an abolitionist mm. country. Therefore, sex workers are being chased. Mm. There are many times that there's many people that do sex work and autonomous sex work. Mm. But there are many sex workers that work in the streets. And actually, they have to take care of the police and not of the clients themselves. Mm. It's like, I think it's important to point out that... Uh, being an unregistered worker mm. carrying with the stigma doesn't help mm. a person. And even though it's very common in the true crime uh, world to see mm. criminals that they seek out for sex workers at, as victims, they don't do it because sex work itself is dangerous. Mm. I mean, they they have they, they are in a vulnerable position because mm. of a stigma or because of the police chasing them as criminals Mm -hmm. or having to pay bribes to the police to perform their work. And even in this case, Shirley Finn was paying a lot of cash to be in the business and Mm -hmm. she ended up with four bullets in her head. Yes. And her children were left, well, motherless. Motherless. 
Bridget was 13 years old when she knew of the death of her mother. Well, that's where we shall step off from the case of the unsolved murder of Shirley Finn. And we'd like you to, or I'd like to remind you to feel free to visit us on any of our social media. Um, if you just search for a history of bad men, history of evil men. A history of a evil history men. history of evil men. <laughs> and yeah, just look up uh, history we- of evil men on YouTube, Inst- on Instagram. Twitter, Facebook, and we also have a Patreon. Mm-hmm. If you feel like sparing some times. A few dollars. And yeah, we look forward to bringing you the next installment of our little podcast. And thank you again for listening. And we shall leave you on the outro with the enormously, (laughs) infinitely talented Steph Animal. Goodbye and stay safe. of Americans are getting back to work. CareerBuilder calls it the great rehire. And we want to help you get the best jobs before everyone else. CareerBuilder gives you the competitive edge to get the job you want at the salary you want with the benefits you want. We even send job alerts so your perfect job lands right in your inbox. Go to CareerBuilder.com today or get left with whatever jobs are left. Find your next job fast at CareerBuilder.com.